Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. My purpose in this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in the past. Now, for myself, I love church history. I delight immersing myself in the world of my brothers and sisters in Christ from different eras of history and in different cultures from mine. I love to see how they acted so boldly and courageously for the glory of Christ. I thrill to read how firmly they stood against persecutors or how they defeated feelings of spiritual depression or how they triumphed over seemingly insurmountable obstacles with prevailing prayer. I have a strong sense of unity with them, though I cannot carry their shoes, for I know they're part of the same spiritual family into which I was adopted when I believed in Christ. At that moment, God gave me the right to become a child of God, as John 1.12 says, and I was adopted by my Heavenly Father. He put in me the spirit of adoption, by which I cry, Abba, Father. At that time, I was 19 years old. I was in my junior year at MIT. I knew almost nothing about church history, but I would begin to find out in time. I would find out the royal lineage of this incredible family of God, the spiritual kinship that makes us one. I would find out that their glory is really my glory. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one part of the body of Christ is honored, the whole body is honored with it. Now, I'm well aware that not everyone shares my excitement for church history. Some of my brothers and sisters are into other things that I'm not too excited about as well. Maybe they like certain arts and crafts that really don't move the needle for me. Maybe they enjoy Christian romance novels that are written in certain historical settings. Maybe they enjoy certain types of exotic cuisine and are very adventurous, adventurous in sampling strange-smelling foods. That's really not my thing. Some people like edgy forms of jazz or hip-hop. I don't really enjoy it. I get it. I understand people have different desires, different tastes. Church history may well seem like one of those acquired tastes, one of those optional things in the Christian life. But I want to argue that it really isn't. In this brief time that we're going to have in this podcast, I want to make a case for why every Christian should spend some of their time learning more about our past history, church history and its past lessons, learning about how amazing the family of God really is by His amazing grace. So what are some reasons why we should study church history? Well, studying church history has the power to humble us because we sometimes act like we are the first people that have ever experienced this suffering or that trial or the other obstacle. When we read the levels of dedication and suffering reached by our brothers and sisters in previous centuries, we are instantly humbled and we realize we really can't carry their shoes. That should cause us to be quiet, to be patient, to want to excel in our time, in our time of suffering, to be willing to face it quietly and with submissiveness. It also humbles us by reminding us that we have come very late to this party. The gospel did not originate with us, nor are we the only ones it has reached, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 36. This keeps us from being arrogant. We're part of something immeasurably immense, the dimensions of which 
I believe it will take eternity to comprehend. Secondly, studying church history has the power to educate us because we realize how our brothers and sisters that preceded us fought for orthodox doctrine. They were willing to die for a right understanding of the incarnation of Christ or of the mystery of the Trinity or of the precise nature of justification. As we read, as we study church history, we sharpen our own doctrine and we are readier to refute false teaching in our day. Studying what our brothers and sisters have done in the past can educate us about approaches to prayer that they used and we've never heard of or different strategies in evangelism, or approaches to ministry to the poor and needy, uh, strategies on missions, strategies on healthy church leadership, approaches to preaching, approaches to money. In every topic in the Christian life, we can be educated. We can sit at the feet of these masters and learn from them. Studying church history also has the power to convict us because we all have blind spots in our lives. When we read of the level of holiness and purity of the lives of some of these great men and women, the level to which they were willing to go to put sin to death in their lives, then we compare it with the worldliness we see in our lives and in our churches, we are convicted deeply. When we see the hours that they spent in the prayer closet every day, and then look at how scanty are our prayer times, we are convicted when we see the zeal that they had for lost souls in their generation and how little we sacrifice to win the lost in our generation, we are convicted. When we see how generously and sacrificially they gave of their time and their energy and their money and how selfish and stingy and materialistic we can be, we are convicted. Studying church history also has the power to encourage us because we realize that the heroes of the past were also deeply flawed sinners just like us. They struggled with the same temptations of the flesh as we did, and they often failed and faltered and stumbled. Yet God in His grace used them mightily for His glory. And in that way, we are encouraged that God can use weak, fragile, frail, and failing sinners like we are. Studying church history also has the power to inspire us. It makes us want to make sacrifices in our own time for the glory of God. It gives us energy. It gives us vitality. It makes us want to rise up boldly, put sin to death boldly, establish new habits of prayer and Bible intake boldly, witness boldly to the loss that surround us every day, venture out boldly in new patterns of creative ministry to the suffering in our generation. We're inspired out of the lethargy that Satan wants to infuse us with. He's like a spider. He wants to sting us and stun us into paralysis and spin a sticky web of sin and laziness and lethargy and hopelessness and guilt around us. So we end up doing nothing, nothing that will threaten his dark regime the power of the Word of God. Studying God's Word is sufficient to inspire all of us to all of this kind of commitment. Don't get me wrong. We don't have to have church history, except 
obviously what is recorded for us in the Bible. There's church history recorded in the Bible. We don't have to have additional church history in order to live godly, fruitful lives. The Bible, the atoning work of Christ, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit are infinitely sufficient to equip us for a fully fruitful life in this world. But God has woven His Word in and through the lives of the saints who preceded us in previous generations and has given us additional help thereby. We would really be fools not to take full advantage. Church history also gives us role models to imitate. As the author of the book of Hebrews said, after relating a whole chapter of men and women of faith who did great things for the glory of God, calling them a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, he urges us all to run with endurance the race of faith marked out before us. In the next chapter, he calls on us to remember the leaders who spoke the word of God to us, who went out before us so that we can, he says, imitate their faith. Hebrews 13.7. So church history gives us abundant role models to imitate. More than anything, though, church history puts the infinite greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ on display because he has seen, he has been seen through so many different lights by different individuals in radically different settings. And he was truly all things to all people. Bruce Shelley, in his excellent work on church history, and I would commend it to you, Church History in Plain Language. I recently listened to the fourth edition. Uh, he finished his book with these stirring words about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he wrote. No other person in recorded history has influenced more people in as many conditions over so long a time as Jesus Christ. The shades and tones of his image seem to shift with the needs of people. The Jewish Messiah of the believing remnant, the wisdom of the Greek apologist, the cosmic king of the imperial church, the heavenly logos of the orthodox councils, the world ruler of the papal courts, the monastic model of apostolic poverty, the personal savior of evangelical revivalists. Truly, he is a man for all time. In a day when many regard him as irrelevant, a relic of a quickly discarded past, church history provides a quiet testimony that Jesus Christ will not disappear from the scene. His title may change, but his truth endures for all generations. So church history gives me different ways to look at the glory of Jesus Christ as he has been seen truly from different lights at different times. Well, that's just an introduction of why we Christians should be zealous and eager to study church history. Let me make some comments now on Christianity and history itself. No other religion in the world is so connected with history as is Christianity. Paul makes an argument theologically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and how essential it is to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's dealing with some Corinthians who said that there is no resurrection from the dead. It cannot be. It's a philosophical, a physical impossibility. But Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In other words, Christianity is absolutely tied to the historicity of Jesus Christ, to whether he actually rose from the dead or not. And we'll extend it beyond, clearly, the resurrection. It's tied to the whole life of Christ. It's tied to whether Jesus actually was born, whether he actually did live, whether he actually did speak these words and do these miracles, whether he actually did die on the cross, his blood actually shed for sinners, and as Paul says, whether he actually was physically raised from the dead on the third day. Christianity wouldn't exist if those things didn't happen. If they did not occur in space and time, then Christianity is gone. Our faith is useless. Our preaching is useless, Paul said. Some liberal views or visions of Christianity swept away that concept, said what really matters is how Christianity, the story, makes you feel, what effect it has on your life. Some people say that even today, but we disagree. Christianity is absolutely tied to the history. And no other religion is equally tied to history, as is Christianity. Buddhism is certainly not. Buddhism is a sense of being disconnected. It, it teaches an impersonal God, if we could call it that, an impersonal God who does not in any way concern himself with events on earth. And, and Buddhism teaches Buddhists to stop caring entirely about things on earth. Non-attachment is the goal, um, not active engagement in the uh, flow of history, not at all. Hinduism is very similar in that regard. Islam uh, is not tied to the history of Muhammad in any way as Christianity is tied to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So there is no religion in the world so connected with history as is Christianity. Well, what is history? History is an accurate record of past events. It's a simple definition. Um, but beyond that is an interpretation of those events, a weaving together of a of an interpretation, a narrative of purpose and reason. So fundamental to Christian history, church history in particular, are two things. First, the lives of human beings are significant and shouldn't be forgotten. And then secondly, there is an overall purpose to history, a direction, a goal, a meaning. These are two vital concepts as we study history. And in all of this, we are fighting a sense of the meaninglessness of life and of history. A sense that you may have that life is meaningless. If you get nothing else out of these podcasts, then that your life really matters and the lives of your brothers and sisters really matter, then it will have been worthwhile. I think about the tragedy of Macbeth. Shakespeare um, has the Macbeth character say these words, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What an empty way of looking at life. It's insane, and it means nothing, and then it's over. It's brief. Henry Ford famously said, history is bunk, fuller statement. Uh, he said in 1916, say, what do I care about Napoleon? What do I care about what they did 500 or 1,000 years ago? I don't know whether Napoleon did this or did not do this or tried to get across the English Channel or something. I don't really care. It means nothing to me. History is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present. And the only history that is worth a tinker's damn is the history we make today. 
Well, that was in 1916. I would want to ask Henry Ford the question, if I'd been standing there at that time, if, Henry, what people did 500 or 1,000 years ago doesn't matter, then why does anything we do today matter? Honestly, if history doesn't matter, then neither do we. When I was in high school, uh, there was a rock group named Kansas, and their most popular song of all the ones they wrote was a song called Dust in the Wind. And uh, Kerry Livgren is a Christian, he wrote this, and, he, and he, it was re he's really capturing a sense of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the lyrics of the song go like this, I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind, all they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Well, actually, that kind of perspective is reflected in the Bible. There are actually some verses in the Bible that point to that. For example, Psalm 103. Verse 15 and 16 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. That idea is captured in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really an amazing book in the Bible. It's a book that I think is excellent for pre-evangelism in the emptiness of our relativistic day. But the basic theme of the book, and it's written by uh, someone who identifies himself as the preacher. Uh, many have traditionally thought him to be King Solomon, and it may well be. But anyway, the preacher lived his life for worldly achievements and for worldly pleasures and worldly possessions. He studied knowledge, studied plant life, animal life, minerals, technology. He built great cities with watered gardens, terraced, visually spectacular gardens. He lived for pleasures, wine, women, and song. His conclusion, after studying all of this, he says right from the beginning, vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless or vanity. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then in Ecclesiastes 1.14, says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, it's important for us to understand why the Holy Spirit would have inspired the book of Ecclesiastes. It is not presented as an ultimate answer in reference to life. Life is ultimately meaningless. It actually isn't. But there's an interpretive key. It is the phrase, under the sun. Everything done under the sun is meaningless. I think it just has to do with life constrained to just this physical planet, physical life, in which you're born, you live, and then you die. If this life is all there is, then it really is meaningless. But the New Testament, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, changes everything. And the fact that there is an eternity to which we are going, and there is a kingdom of heaven which is being built, and it is going to be populated by people who have been raised from the dead and will live in resurrection bodies forever. At the end of a chapter unfolding the, the truth of the resurrection of Christians in the pattern of Christ, he being the first fruit of a vast harvest of resurrected ones, 
1 Corinthians 15, at the end of all this, this is the ethical application, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vanity of vanities. It's not meaningless. It's not in vain. So the resurrection of Christ changes everything. Life is not empty. It's not meaningless. Therefore, our Christian brothers and sisters that went before us and did good works that God prepared in advance for them to walk in, we're building a kingdom that will live forever. And it's worth studying. Now behind all this, or perhaps above all this, is the sense of God's control of history. That it is a story that he is telling. It's his story. God has a purpose in history. There's no point in speaking of the purpose in history if the eternal God were not sovereign over it, controlling it to tell a unified story. But many scriptures assert this truth. God is sovereign over everything that happens on planet Earth. For example, Ephesians 1.11 speaks of the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's not 99%. It's everything gets worked out according to God's eternal plan. And again, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. God works out everything in conformity with his purpose. Or again, Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings down one, he exalts another. In other words, you don't get to be a president, a prime minister, a dictator, a king, an emperor. You don't get to have any position on earth apart from the sovereign will of God. And then once you're in that position, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, whichever way he pleases. So God sovereignly rules over king's decrees and decisions, great and small, to achieve a purpose and end. Again, Jesus in Matthew 10, 29 and 30 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And so what is God's purpose? Well, the reason why God created all things, the reason why he's a redeemed sinners by the blood of Christ, the reason for everything is to put himself on display, to put his glories on display. For the display of his glory, the radiant display of his attributes, as it says in Ephesians 1, in him were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. God wants to put himself on display that we would see in every day, in every year, in every decade, in every century, indeed in every millennium, in the whole flow of history. What a magnificent, wise, powerful, loving, just God he is. The tapestry of history is to put God on display. As Paul said in that beautiful doxology at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's the purpose of history, that we would see that everything came from God. Heaven praises God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer, and history fits into that. Revelation 4.11, praise for God the Creator. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So God sustains all things in every generation 
by his powerful word, upholds them. And then in Revelation 5, there is depicted a scroll sealed with seven seals, which some interpreters have called the title deed of the earth. They're going to be subsequently broken open, the seals, one seal after the other, broken open. But first, the scroll is offered to someone who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And no one is found in heaven or earth or under the earth who is worthy to take the scroll or open it up. Then John weeps and weeps because no one is found in heaven or earth or under the earth worthy. But he's told, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And he comes and takes the scroll from the right hand of Almighty God. And he has the right to take it. It is the title deed of the earth, and it's the unfolding of history in Jesus' hand. And it is glorious and powerful. It's a story being told. And when he had taken that scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and they worshipped, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you are slain, and with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's the ultimate consummation of history. The centerpiece of history is the display of the glory of God in the redemption of the elect from every tribe, language, people, and nation, being fitted to be an eternal priesthood to serve God in the new heaven, new earth. That's where we're going in history. And everything that has happened in these millennia has been for that purpose. As Jesus said after his resurrection from the dead to the assembled church in the upper room, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, in the podcasts that are going to follow, we're going to be looking as best we can at both the overarching scope of the unfolding story of church history and as many details as we can, the forest and the trees to some degree. You know that saying, so-and-so can't see the forest for the trees. means he's so zeroed in on the details, he can't see the big picture. Well, I want to do the best I can to give you both the details and the overarching narrative. You could visualize somebody that's so zeroed on the details, like some expert in redwood trees or in forestry, and he spends weeks on his hands and knees with a magnifying glass staring at the bark of one particular redwood tree. And you are a helicopter pilot that gives, gives tours of the California coastline. You say, I want to take you on a trip. So you get your friend away from his meticulous studying of one tree's bark. And you say, here, get on this in this helicopter. And you give him a two-hour ride up and down the magnificent coastline of, the, of Northern California. You can see the entire redwood forest, all of it. And you can see the crashing waves, and you can see the, the cliffs and all of that. That's the big picture. And then he goes back, and he studies the details of the one tree. And it's a worthwhile study but he sees how the, the details fit into the overall picture. That's what I want to try to do. People love the exciting, thrilling stories of church history, the heroes, the martyrs, the men and women that do great things, but they have to be set in context. You have to know what, what went before, what came after. And so sometimes that can be seen a little more dull. Um, I will try my best that it not be dull. I tell you in heaven, when we look back at history, we will not be bored by anything. We'll be thrilled. And we'll have the mental capacity to take in the whole, but also see the details. So the picture here is of dimensions and details. The big picture and then the tiny aspects. When I was on a mission trip in 1987, 
I was in Islamabad, Pakistan, and I went into a, a very high-end um, Persian rug store, and I saw a very expensive antique Persian rug. It was a tapestry to some degree of, uh, that it had been made, I think, in the 1920s. And it de depicted a, um, a Persian prince, I think, on a horse, a white horse with mountains in the background. It was magnificent. But the uh, owner of the store was an expert in Persian carpets, and he showed us uh, what distinguished uh, a priceless, the thing was worth something like $20,000, a priceless rug like that from a cheaper version. had to do with how many knots there were. And he showed us the back of the tapestry with all of the little knots and threads and all that. And so it is with the un unfolding of church history. Uh, down at the detailed level, all we can see is individual threads and knots, and, and the whole thing looks like, I don't know, a tangled mess. But when we get to heaven, we're going to see the dimensions and details. We're going to see the big picture, the unfolding, the picture of the, of the prince riding on the horse and the mountains in the distance. You're going to see the whole big picture, and it's the glory of God. But then we're going to see how every little thread at every knot fit into that picture. As we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing there is nothing new under the sun. And whatever it is you're going through, there are Christians who have come before you who have dealt with similar struggles and through the power of Christ have overcome them and you will too. We also know from scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do. And they did them for the glory of God in the same way God has gone ahead of you and prepared good works for you to do for his glory. Go do them by the same power of the Spirit of Christ that was in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.